And I am going to back up to 1-1 and read through verse 23. Our text this morning will be from verse 6 through 23, but we're, we're just going to start at the beginning. So Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the land. The land was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. There was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land land. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the land sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, the fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the land. And it was so. The land brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the land. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the land." to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the land across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to each kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the land. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. This is God's word. You may be seated. We pray as we enter into this text this morning. Father, it's amazing that you You create with exuberance and joy. And you create stuff that we can feel and touch and taste and walk in and even things that we we can't go to, like the very depths of the ocean, we'd be crushed. You have created these things and they are astounding. They point to you. Father, I pray that you would, as you created through your word, by your spirit, that you, as we come to your written word, 
that you would illumine our minds by your Spirit, that you would strengthen me by your Spirit, and that, Spirit, we would do your work through your Word in our hearts, and that we might not leave unchanged. Lord, we pray these things and ask them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm sure as you realize in the Western world, in our, the spheres of life that you interact in, um, a common worldview, not everyone's worldview, but a common worldview you're going to encounter is that the universe is ruled by chance. And if it's ruled by chance, true randomness, which even that in and of itself, it's hard to define what is true randomness. What does that mean? But let's just take it as people normally mean it. Everything's governed by chance. It's random. That implies that there is absolutely no meaning or purpose to the universe. And people believe this. Uh, people believe that there is absolutely no meaning to their life, no purpose to their life. And so uh, think about if you believe that, if that's your worldview, we started talking about worldviews last week. If that's your worldview, if you believe everything's governed by chance, there's no purpose, there's no meaning, well, what is that logically going to lead you to? First, I would argue it's going to lead you to selfishness. It's going to lead you to say, well, I might as well, uh, even though there's no purpose, there's no meaning, at least um, doing the things that I like, uh, at least doing, def defining meaning, even though my meaning is meaningless, uh, you know, uh, pursuing pleasure, whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever it makes you feel happy, uh, then I'm going to pursue that. And I'm going to pursue it for me. There's no meaning in the universe, so I might as well get what I can while I'm here now. So I would say, if you believe that, the universe is ruled by chance, there's no meaning and purpose, then you're going to be a selfish person. But even more so, the consequences get worse. See, once even, um, you know, whether it's uh, you, you define your own meaning and you look for meaning and you go after whether, whatever that is for you, because you can define it yourself, well, you go after that, but you come to live long enough and you realize this is meaningless. Even though you might acknowledge that there's, there's nothing here, there's nothing of substance. The author of Ecclesiastes would use this refrain, it's, it's vanity, it's like smoke vapor. You try to grasp it and it's, it's nothing. And so what happens is it leads people to despair. To despair. And depending on how they define what meaning is, maybe their, their pursuit of uh, meaning in a, a universe governed by chance and with no purpose, it leads them to great evil, horrific atrocities, that's where that worldview leads you. That's a common worldview. That's a naturalistic worldview. If you carry it through to its logical conclusion, now thankfully not everyone does, but if you carry a naturalistic worldview to its logical conclusion, that's the world in which you live in. It is empty. It is vain. Uh, even if you kind of live for your happiness here and now, you're going to die an empty and bitter person. We know that's true if you live according to that worldview. But that worldview is wrong. It is false. It's not real. 
Now, we're talking about worldviews because that's what Genesis is all about. Remember, we talked about the audience of Genesis. Genesis is written by Moses to probably the, the, the children of the Exodus generation. So God rescues his people from Egypt, but all of those, that generation, uh, except for Caleb and Joshua, die in the desert. And Moses, before he's about to die, and before the people of Israel are going to go into the promised land, he writes Genesis. Why? Well, what we've said is to give identity and meaning, to give a worldview, because as Israel is going to enter this land, conquer various peoples, um, interact with various peoples, they're in a world that from Egypt in the southwest to Mesopotamia in the northeast and Canaan right there in the middle, all sorts of worldviews connected with the divine, connected with various gods and uh, this nation has this God, and th this people worships this God, and this people has this understanding of how the world came to be, and it's, uh, and it's connected with this worldview, with particular gods and powers and forces. And so though, though the worldviews might look different than our worldview today, that is why Genesis is written, and that's why Genesis 1 is written. Now, just to review what we did last week, we looked at verses 1, 1 through 5. And I argued last week that verse 1 is a summary of what we're going to encounter in the first six days. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the land. The word that's used there, translated earth, uh, it, it, it usually just means a land. And we, we, what we said is we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the worldview, the conception of things for the ancient Israelites. They're not thinking the globe, and they're not thinking outer space. They're thinking... The land under my feet and what I see above. And so uh, Genesis 1-1 is a summary as Moses begins his account of here's what's going to happen. And then in verse 2, Moses gives some background. And that background in verse 2 is really important for how this narrative, even today, as we go forward, we're going to allude back to and call back to verse 2. It sets us up for what God's going to do. The land was without form and void is formless and empty. And darkness was over the face of the deep, deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So everything's covered in water. Everything's pitch black. Can't see anything, although there's stuff there. And there's this focus on the land. Um, there's no form to it, and it's empty. That's what we talked about last week. Now, like I said... Uh, all these things, they're, they're, they're being conceived of from an ancient Israelites worldview, but this was also a worldview. The way it's framed and structured, it's, it's also connecting with just enough with the worldviews of Israelites, Israel's neighbors. It's connecting with it just enough to critique it. Because like I said, in many of these cultures and nations and peoples around, there was an explanation for the universe there was an explanation that related to battles that gods had, and then the result of those battles is creation, and this god is behind this element, and this god is behind this element. And what Genesis 1 does is, is it connects just enough with those worldviews to then give the true story. I gave an illustration last week, and I think it's helpful in just setting the tone of what Genesis 1 is doing. 
in our day with our, you know, naturalistic worldview that a lot of people have in our culture, um, I could say this. In the beginning, God spoke and bang, the universe came into existence. And what am I doing there? I am connecting with a surrounding worldview, but only to critique it. Only to say that that worldview is fundamentally false because God is the one, the only one behind the universe. And so as we progress today, we continue with that idea of shaping the right worldview. And so just like our big idea was last week, it's the same kind of fundamental idea, shape up your worldview. But this week, we're going to look at what are we shaping in our worldview? Shape up your worldview. God formed and filled the cosmos for his pleasure and people. God formed and filled the cosmos for his pleasure and people. Now, remember how day one works. Remember I said that verse two kind of sets up the background for everything that God's going to do. He's going to start everything on day one, starting in verse three. What was the background? The land was um, formless and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, verse two, especially the first two lines, um, sets up what God's going to remedy, Notice that the last thing that was said, as far as something that needed to be remedied, Spirit of God hovering over the, wa- the face of the waters, that doesn't need to be remedied. That's actually showing God's care and his supremacy over the creation. But right before that, darkness was over the face of the deep. Everything's pitch black, can't see anything. And what does God do on day one? He remedies that situation by creating light by his word, and then not just creating light, but ordering light, separating light between light and dark. And so that was what he has done on the first day. So verse two is setting the agenda for what God is going to do. And so we dealt with the darkness. What is God going to do next? Well, we look at day two and we see this, the heavens are formed. The heavens are formed. Now I'm using that language of formed and filled very intentionally. Because what was the problem in verse 2? The land is formless and empty. And everything that God is going to do in days 2 through 6 is address those things. And so we begin to see um, God's dealt with the darkness. Now we're going to see him forming and filling. Or begin to form and fill. Day 2, the heavens are formed. Look at verse 6. And God said, so every day that starts, starts with God's speech. That's a constant refrain. Everything in creation, it comes from God's speech, the power of his word. We understand that the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We understand the spirit is there going to empower God's word to create all this stuff. So it's God's word empowered by his spirit to create this. What does God say? Let there be an expanse. Maybe your translation says a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Now notice what God's speech is. It's not uh, an idea or a suggestion. It's a command. It's kind of a weird command. It's a third person command. In English, we say, go do this. And I'm, I'm speaking to you as a person, but this is like a third person command saying, uh, let this happen. It must happen. It's a command. God is commanding. With his word, it's performative speech, which means it's bringing into existence the things it's commanding. And we actually get a little more elaboration on that in this. But what is God commanding here? Let there be an expanse. Let's talk about this word. 
this word um, seems to mean, in the Israelite conception, it seems to mean uh, essentially what we would say, the sky. Uh, but how do they conceive of the sky and how is this word means? This word has connotations of a, something like a beaten out metal plate. Hence the word firmament. It's the idea that, um, yeah, an expanse would be fine. Um, you could, you could kind of think of it as a tent being put out, but uh, the, it seems more likely that it kind of has the, a connotation of beating out a metal plate. Into the shape of what? Well, in this case, into the shape of something like a dome, that if you're someone who's from the perspective on earth, and that's the perspective that this whole thing is written from, it's written from the perspective of someone standing on land. Well, what you look up and see? You look up and you see what appears to be a dome. Um, a dome that uh, shows the heavens. And that's what this is referring to. Uh, let there be expanse, firmament, however you want to render that. It's that, uh, that layer, that separation. See, that's what God is saying. Let there be uh, an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Now, what waters? Well, remember, everything starts pitch black with like ocean depths. That's the picture in verse two. And so what is happening here is that uh, those deep waters are being separated. Part of them is going above the firmament, the expanse, and part of them is below. Now, the ones below are easy. Uh, that's like all the water that's we encounter on the earth. That one's aren't hard. What does it mean by the waters above the expanse? Again, we go back to, well, how does the, how does the, the, the ancient Israelites, how does the Bible even present or model uh, the world? Well, uh, we can go to things, even in Genesis, like uh, the, uh, later on when the flood happens, it describes how the windows of heaven are opened. And even in places like Job, it talks about uh, how there's like storehouses, like God talks about storehouses of hail and things like this um, in the heavens. Now, um, what, is, what is happening there? Well, there's this conception, and this is common in the ancient worldview, that, um, okay, we got this kind of um, thing, this dome that we can see up there that is apparently, uh, they thought of it as somewhat solid in some sense. Um, and then uh, above that is uh, the storehouses of water. That's where you get your precipitation and your rain and your hail and all of that sort of a thing. So that's the model in the ancient worldview. It's the model the Bible uses. It's a functional model that is according to observation. And God uses it to describe how he creates. So he's got this expanse, separates the waters from the waters. Verse 7, now we get God has spoken. And in this case, unlike the light, God actually, there's a record of God's activity. So with the light, God just speaks and the light's there. This time, this actually records God's activity in accomplishing what he's commanded to happen. Verse 7, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. So exactly what he commanded to happen is happening, and God's accomplishing it. And it was so. That little refrain happens throughout um, these days, and it, it just explains God's word happened. He accomplished it. He made it so. 
And God called the expanse heaven. That word there for heaven, Shemayim, is the exact same word that is used in verse 1. God created the heavens, so you could translate it here, heavens as well. And again, in the Israelite conception, you look up to the sky, that's the heavens. It's the physical heavens, and it's also conceptualized that above that is where God dwells. So they're not necessarily separating those two in their minds. This is the heavenly realm. This is the sky and what's above it, which would include God's domain. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now, there's a couple things to notice about this day. Um, One... Uh, would be, again, like what we've been saying, that Moses is framing things with just enough connection to the common ancient Near Eastern worldview to then critique it. Well, in the ancient Near Eastern worldview, we've got some examples of this. Uh, One account is like this god, the god Marduk. He goes out and he battles this other god, this watery god. And it's a pretty gruesome tale because he splits, he vanquishes the water god and he splits like lengthways the water god in half. So half the waters go up and half the waters go down, such that the heavens are kind of considered like stretched skin of a vanquished god, both below and above. Pretty picture. But that illustrates that for the worldview of the Israelites that they're encountering, there's, there's, there's a divine explanation for what we're looking at above. There's a divine explanation for what's looking down below. Uh, in Egypt, the god Nut. Uh, arched, uh, uh, I forget, was it her or him, but um, arched her back uh, in such a way to hold back the heavenly waters. So the firmament, the thing that you see above, oh, that's actually a god holding back the waters so that they conceive of their worldview. It's not just a physical thing, but those physical things are connected with gods. So we automatically, knowing that, can look at this account and it's like, there's no gods, other gods involved here. There is one God. Um, And the heavens are not like, it's not like God had to do battle with some other God um, to create the the firmament, to create the heavens, to create the sky. He just beat it out like a metal plate, like a master craftsman. That's how it's presented. These elements that God is interacting with, they don't have a force or a life of their own. They're not connected with any other gods. Um, He's just using them like like a master craftsman would a piece of metal, like a blacksmith, or like a piece of wood, or a sculptor. That's what God is doing. So what does this do? It highlights God's supremacy. It highlights there's only one true and living God, and here's how he created the universe. Um... There's another thing, though, that we could notice, uh, and it, 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 we're only into the second day, but you do notice that God does not pronounce anything good on day two. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because every other day, he says, it's good. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. God sees, and it's good. He evaluates, like a master craftsman, his handiwork, and says, this is great. Uh, I, I enjoy it. I take pleasure in it. Day two, he does not. Why is that? Well, uh, first, we could acknowledge that if we were to go down to verse 31, the very kind of end of day six, God does say he looked over everything he has made, and he declared it very good. 
Um, and so that's, so the heavens would be included in that. So we're not saying that God is somehow making something defective or he doesn't think it's good. Uh, but why is this one thing um, singled out for not being said individually to be good? Um, and I think what we do is we do well to go back to verse 2, because everything that's set in God's agenda ha- is in verse 2. Notice in verse 2 how it starts. The land was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So the land is covered with water, but there's a focus, even in how that's stated, on the land. Remember one of the things we said in our overview of Genesis? Genesis is written to a people, to the Israelite people, and it's giving them an identity. And one of the things we see from Genesis all the way through the scriptures is that God is creating a people to dwell in a land which is kind of the citizens of a kingdom and the realm of a kingdom to have a kingdom, a rule. So the issue here and what God is doing in day two, it's not just for fun. He's doing it in part to remedy of the situation of the land. Now the land is still covered with water. We see that in day three, which we're about to talk about. God not only takes pleasure in what he does and says it's good, but he does it for a purpose. He does it for a purpose. And there's a focus in all of this and what he is doing on creating a land. Well, the land hasn't been created yet. What he does in day two is a prerequisite to the land coming about, but the land hasn't come about yet. When it does, in verse three, you will see that God makes a pronouncement of good. Because he's not just creating for fun, although he is, he's doing it for his joy, but he is doing it for a purpose. He's doing it for a purpose. So day two, we see the heavens are formed. They're formed. So that's forming. Day three, since we've already begun talking about it, let's talk about the land. The land is formed and begins to be filled. The land is formed and begins to be filled. Verse nine, God said, so everything starts with God's speech. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. So the picture still is everything's underwater. The land is there, but it's underwater. And just like in verse two, it is is formless. The land is formless and it's empty. So now having done the prerequisite of creating the heavens, the expanse, the the dome, the hammered out dome, um, now God is... Uh, calling the waters that are under the heavens into one place. Now you might think, oh, it's like calling it together into one giant ocean or something like that. That's not what happens. Notice how the text proceeds. And it was so. So God spoke and it happened. Um, So what do we do in vision? We're in vision, the land coming up out of the waters, the dry land. And then God names. God called the dry land land. This is the same word that was used in 1.1. Eretz. In the beginning, God created Shemayim, Vaha Eretz. And what do we have here? The dry land is called Eretz. It's the same thing. And you notice the order is reflected in the exact same way as in 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth. What just happened? Day two, the heavens, and now the earth, the dry land. 
And he not only names the land, he does this. Uh, what about all the rest of the waters? And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. Now, the plural there is important. It's not like God just uh, sucked everything into a giant ocean. Uh, it, it is, it, notice the plural, it's seas. So it's almost like he's conceiving of things being gathered together down. Touch that you might encounter a sea over here, a sea over here, all these bodies of water. But the point is, and the focus of the text is, the dry land appeared. It now has form. It didn't have form before, but now it's there because God has not only separated the waters above the heavens, there's the, the heavens there, but he's, the waters below the heavens, he's gathered those together such that the dry land appears. The focus is on the land. And here, was, here it is, and God saw that it was good. So if you were to take together the whole complex of God putting this separation, this expanse in the heavens from separating the waters initially, he, does it, he then gathers the waters and that whole complex of events, now it's good because it remedies part of the situation in verse 2. The land was formless. Well, now it's formed. Now it's formed. And God pronounces it good. He pronounces it good not only because he's pleased in his handiwork, but it's accomplishing his task. He is sending for it. But then something unusual happens. See, when we read the, the account in Genesis 1, there's repetition and pattern. But so when there's any deviation from that pattern, it draws our attention. Well, here, what's amazing is the day hasn't stopped yet. And... God speaks again. Well, normally when God speaks, the day begins, but this time we have two speeches of God on day three. Look at verse 11. And God said, let the land sprout vegetation. Now it's kind of, there's a play on words in Hebrew that you can't see there. You could almost translate it like this. Let the land make itself green with green vegetation. Like uh, all the, a bunch of green stuff. But not, uh, what does that green stuff consist of? First, plants yielding seed. Now that's going to be a key word in Genesis, seed. Plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. So we got different kinds of plants, different kinds of stuff. And kind is just a way of referring to a general category. It doesn't, it doesn't fit with our idea of species necessarily. It's just talking about a general category. And so we've got fruit trees. So we got the green trees and we got these other green plants. But the focus is on these things can bear seed. Well, what's the big idea about them bearing seed? Well, the whole idea is if you have a plant that bears seed, whether it's a fruit tree or whether it's some other grass, like maybe wheat or barley that has seed in it, well, the seed goes into the earth and then it produces more. There's reproduction and there's fertility. That's what God is calling for. And notice what happens. And it was so. God's word, God's command is accomplished. The land brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the third day. Now, this is interesting because the day three is special. Why? Why do I say it's special? Because there's two speeches. We've only had one speech of God before. Now we have two. Uh, he formed the land, but there's another problem with the land in verse 2, isn't there? The land was formless and empty. And now the land begins to be filled. 
actually, it's kind of interesting, depending on how you count the speeches of God in Genesis 1, uh, you know, everything introduced and God said and God said, if you count it up, then this moment is a turning point. It's the turning point between God remedying the situation of formlessness to now God filling. Now, he's not done filling the land. We'll see that later, but he begins to remedy it. Now, we're also left with kind of a question. What's the big deal about the seed? What's the big deal about the reproduction of the plants? Like, who cares? Like, God doesn't need that. Now, he's pleased to do it, but we're kind of prompted with a question. Like, why the seed? You might say, well, yeah, he just wants to fill the world, so he's going to do that through natural production of these plants. They're just going to keep reproducing and fill the earth. Well, that's true, but he could have just called everything over the all of those plants in together all at once. There's, there's kind of a question there. Why the plants? Why the seed? Why the reproduction? A question that's not immediately answered, but just store that away. Why is that need to happen? Now, again, this connects with uh, the Israelite neighbors and their worldview. When you think about the ancient Near East and you think about uh, the fertility of the land, it's not just the land here, it's the fertility of the land. The fertility of the land is very much tied to God's. This God makes it rain. This God makes the earth fertile, allows crops to happen. That's a big deal in the ancient world because that's where you get your food. But here, again, no, no gods, uh, other gods causing it to rain. God's the one who put the storehouses, the heavens above the firmament, heavens above the expanse so that it can rain. God's the one that's created these plants to be fertile. God's the one that's made the dry land fertile and not barren. Again, it emphasizes there's only one true God. He's the one in control of all things, and he shapes his universe like a master craftsman. And for his own pleasure, and maybe something else, What's this whole focus on the land? What's this whole focus on the seed and the fertility? Why does it, why does it matter? It's raising a question that we're it's leading us a place, if that makes sense. I'll remind you one thing about the refrain of the end of the days. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. Remember that really, um, we can see this in day one, God calls the daylight day. And he calls the like darkness night. So when all of these days are being marked off, it's kind of like a work day. It's not so much referring to a 24-hour period, although that's true, that's intimated in the text, but day and night put together in the way we would think about a day, but he's talking about a work day. Remember what is happening on all this. God is being presented as the prototypical workman. He's doing his work day. He, God only does stuff during the daylight. Because, how do I know that? Because the refrain says, and then there was evening after all this stuff is done. And then there was morning. God does nothing during the night. He does it during the daytime, like a workman. So I just remind you of that, because that's, that's a key refrain, and we'll talk more about why God, the count is doing that. So we've got the heavens formed. We've got day three. The land is formed and begins to be filled, but there's more to it. Day four, we go back to the heavens. The heavens are filled with lamps. The heavens are filled with lamps. Verse 14. And God said... Starting the day again with God's speech, let there be lights. Now, this word for light is different from the one in verse, uh, in the first day. Um, you know, you can think of light in a couple different ways. You can think about the light, like the, um, you can think about it like the light beam, 
which is more like day one. But you can also think the source of light, and the source of light is what is in view here. So this could be translated lamps or luminaries. So what is in focus here? Light has already been created on day one. The focus here is on the source of light. Now, we already said in day one, they're like, well, where, where is the source of light? Where is it coming from? Because we were th looking ahead to day four, and it's like, well, wait a minute, the source of light being caught here. Well, we argued, I would argue that uh, that would be no problem for an Israelite because they understand if God is present, and he is a present in his creation, when God's presence, God's presence can manifest light when he wants to, a glorious light. But here what God is doing is he's creating lamps. Lamps. Let there be luminaries or lamps in the expanse of the heavens. So here we see, we got this firmament, this like hammered out dome that seems like they're conceiving of it as solid. He's going to hang some lights. He's going to hang some lights in the heavens. To do what? First, to separate the day from the night. Now God already separated the day from the night in day one. So what's the difference here? Uh, these luminaries, these lamps are going to take over from God. God's doing this in the initial creative act. He's giving light, but now he's creating things to regularly uh, separate between the day and the night. So that's the first thing. It's taking over for God producing light or um, providing that in some way. But that's not the only thing these lamps are for. It's not just for separation of the day from the night, the daily rhythm. And let them be for signs. And the second word here, it's usually translated seasons. A better rendering would be for appointed times. Usually the word that's used here for appointed times is like Israelite festivals. So Israel has festivals during the year, certain times of the year, and there are appointed times where everyone comes together. So appointed times would be one way of thinking about this. Let them be for signs and for appointed times and for days and for years. Now, what is he saying? He's saying these lights that God, these lamps that God's going to put in the heavens, therefore marking time. Not just duration, like days and years, but also to give signs and markers for specific events, like Israelite festivals, etc. Not only those things, but that's what God is doing. What is God doing? He's giving a clock. He's giving a clock. That's how we would put it. They don't have clocks. But this is the cosmic clock for how time is marked out, for how appointed times are marked out. And let them be, that's not it. So it's separation from day and night. That's what these lamps are going to do for um, signs and for appointed times and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. So they not only separate day and night, the daily rhythm. They not only mark seasons and events, times of the year, um, they also give light upon the land. Again, notice the focus on the land. There's a purpose in these things, and the purpose is for the land. The land has been in focus since verse 2. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light for dominion over the day, and the lesser light for dominion over the night. So he's referring to the sun and the moon and the stars. I love that. It's an afterthought. And it's just, from our perspective, we understand that like, and the stars is like, like galaxies. 
But even from their point of view, the, 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 the lights in the heavens, the, whether the sun, the moon, uh, the stars, uh, again, we think about the connection with the ancient worldview. Uh, these are things like the sun and the moon. Like Abraham was a moon worshiper. He came out of a moon worshiping people. Uh, you can think of Egypt and also Mesopotamia. There's worship of the sun. Uh, there's also things like divination with the stars, right? There's like these cosmic forces, these divine forces um, tied up in all of these things. But what does the account tell us? They didn't even use the name for sun. It's kind of interesting. Moses doesn't use the name for sun, uh, the normal Hebrew word for sun or for moon. He, and most commentators believe he's doing that uh, as kind of a snub because the names for sun and moon could also be names of deities, and so it's kind of like um, it, it, it's a parody of the ancient Near Eastern worldview. He's saying, oh, yeah, yeah, that greater light. What was its name again? That lesser light. Oh, and by the way, the stars. And what is it doing? It's doing the exact same thing all over again. It's showing these are just created elements of God, the one true God. There's no divine forces that are in opposition to God, no competition just a master craftsman putting lights in the expanse. And what's interesting here, too, is he uses this idea of rule. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and it was evening and it was morning the fourth day. This, this idea of rule is kind of interesting. Um, weird way of talking about the lights. Now you can just think of it in terms of the dominance of the sun and the moon over the nights, but you can also think about, this is kind of starting to define for us what rule looks like. Remember we talked about the Genesis one account and the, well, the rest of Genesis and the rest of scripture. It's about a people and a land and a rule. But here we get a picture of rule that's connected with created elements, yes, but we can already start to see rule is not necessarily a bad thing. Rule is a beneficial thing. Just like the sun and the moon and their cycles, they're beneficial. They're beneficial. God is taking pleasure in all this. It's good, but it's also good for a purpose. It's good for a purpose as the master craftsman continues. Now, taking a step back, what was the problem? What was the problem with everything at the beginning? Well, there's formlessness and there's emptiness. Now, the form is already there. By the end of day three, really the middle part of day three, everything's kind of formed, but it's empty still. We already see God starting to fill things with the land, with the plants. Now God's filling the heavens. He's putting stuff in the heavens, but not just stuff there willy-nilly. He is doing it for a purpose and with his own pleasure. You also start to see, did you notice that the speeches are getting longer? Day one is pretty short. Day two gets a little bit longer. Not that much longer. Day three, we got two speeches. Day four, we got a long speech, though still one. There's a buildingness to this. this there's, if you were to think about this in musical terms, there's a crescendo starting. There's a crescendo starting, which continues, which continues. But there's one other question before we leave day four. What did he say? Uh, they're going to be for signs and for appointed times, for days and for years. Appointed times for who? For what? God doesn't need a clock. There's this question that we're left with, kind of like the question we were left with day three. 
What's it for? Why, why are these things being put into place? Point in times for who? Point in times for what? And we continue. Day five. Day five, verse 20. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let winged creatures fly above the land across the expanse of the heavens. Now, notice kind of what domain we're operating in here. This is important, I think. Um, we've kind of been bouncing back and forth. Heaven, earth. Heaven, now where are we at? Well, we're kind of, you could say, well, we're on earth, right? Well, yes, sort of, but there, where, where have we got? We got waters here, so the water's under the earth. Water's under the land. So the things kind of below the land are being picked up here. And the things immediately above the land, right? The stuff that flies in the sky. So notice here, God's talking about the winged creatures. So it's, it's rendered here birds. Uh, it could be any winged creature like insects. They would have lumped it in with that category of winged creatures. Well, winged creatures, they can nest on the earth, but they also fly across the sky, don't they? So we're talking about the domains immediately kind of below the land and immediately above the land, which does what? Well, it draws attention in another way to what we've been seeing throughout the land. The land is central to all of this. So God gives this command. And so what happens? Verse 21, again, we have God's activity here in creating these things. So God created the great sea creatures. Now, the word here for sea creatures, uh, again, when we think about an ancient Near Eastern worldview, this is like sea monsters, like big, scary creatures. And that's a big deal. We'll talk about that more. Um, well, we'll talk about it now. The, the, the ancient Near Eastern worldview, when they think about the ocean, they think about like these kind of almost semi-divine uh, chaos creatures that dwell in the ocean. So a force that could oppose other gods. But here what we see is God just creates the sea monsters. So anything that dwells in the sea, it's not some other force or competition with God. God just creates it. And not only the big stuff, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. I encourage you to, at some point, watch some good nature shows. Even if they come at it from a, a false worldview, they'll still give you pretty pictures of nature, God's creation. And you watch the birds swarming. Just go watch Planet Earth. Like, it's just great. Just go watch it. And you see just millions of birds or you watch, um, you know, Blue Planet or something like that, Planet Earth, whatever, and they take you under the sea, and they're just giant things and weird stuff, creepy crawlies, schools of fish that just, like, put themselves into a ball as a, a defensive procedure. Just that's, and teeming, swarming is the right word for all of this. Well, what is God doing? He's filling. These things are already formed. Now they're being filled filled with stuff immediately for the realms immediately below the land and immediately above 
We get a new element here. Uh, We do get God saw that it was good, but we get more speech of God, but this time a particular type of speech, verse 22, and God blessed them. Now, this is the first instance of blessing in the Hebrew Bible. What is blessing? Blessing is God giving favor and empowerment for something. We can listen to uh, what God's blessing is. Blessing is speech. Well, what's God's speech? What is the content of the blessing? And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the land. So the blessing here is procreation and also filling as a result of that. That's God's blessing to, to these creatures. He speaks to them directly. And they are filling the earth, filling the cosmos, but in such a way that there's, again, this kind of focus on the land. The land is not really mentioned here except as a byproduct, but what have we been doing? Heaven, earth. Back to the heavens, let's fill the heavens. Back to not quite the earth, right below the earth and right above the earth. So what's being highlighted? The land which is what is focused on in day six, which is what we will talk about next week. But I hope you feel the building crescendo. The building crescendo of God's speech, the exuberance of each day kind of builds on the last. It gets fuller and fuller and not crazy because it's not out of control, but it is, it is, there's, more and more activity, more and more life. Did you notice that? That their plants are alive in a sense, right? They reproduce seed and they reproduce. That's a sort of life. But what happens on day five? We get living, breathing creatures. There's an escalation in terms of the life that is being created. And it's all pointing ahead, pointing ahead to God's people. That's what we'll see next week, but it's worth bringing up here. Remember those questions? Why, why, do, we, why do we need fruit trees? Why do we need seed? Why, why, do we, why do we need appointed times? Why do we need those things? It's because God is creating this stuff not, all, not only out of just sheer joy of like a master craftsman, but he's doing it for a purpose. And the purpose he is creating the cosmos is for his people, particularly the land. But the land interacts with all these other environments, lights and fruit trees and things. We will see those things mentioned again on day six. The creation account is focused on the land and the land being created in such a way for God's people. And what we'll see next week is a people who are supposed to reign. You think about creation and we'll think about more application here in a second, but sometimes we just kind of think it's there and sometimes, and we ought to see it and we ought to be drawn to seeing our creator, the greatness of the creator, the awesomeness of the creator. And we ought to be worshiping God for that. But sometimes we just start to think about kind of, well, the creation stuff is just there, but it's not just there. It's there for a purpose. And the purpose is for humanity. Now, as soon as I say that, um, naturalists and environmentalists are like, you arrogant 
so-and-so, um, uh, you know, thinking that the earth is just for humanity or thinking in all the galaxies and all the things that we can see, um, we're just a small speck, which is true. But what we understand for the creation account is, yeah, but God created that whole environment uh, for his people. And as we will see, not just for his people, but for his people to relate to him. Really, you can think about it like this, and we'll talk about this more in coming weeks. It's the temple. It's the first temple. The cosmos is God's temple built for his people, a perfect environment to live with him, to relate to him. He's preparing the environment before he even brings in the people and to relate to him and to carry out God's will. Now, what else do we learn from this account? The creation account shows that the God of Israel is the only creator. There are no other gods or forces besides him. The things in the ancient Near Eastern world that are associated with gods in the nations around the Israelites are simply created, and they're given their purposes by the one true creator. Now, we kind of have the opposite problem from the ancient Near Eastern worldview. The ancient Near Eastern worldview, everything's attached to a god. We live in a culture and a worldview where nothing is attached to a god. But the account still addresses the problem. It's just addressing it from a different angle. In either case, in either worldview, the issue is there's not many gods. There's one God. There's not no gods. There's one God. One creator God. Nothing just happens by chance. We don't live in a universe of chance. We live in a universe of purpose. There's one true and living God that has created everything for his pleasure and with a purpose for humanity, and as we will see, humanity for a purpose as well. A naturalistic worldview can't account for why everything is so fine-tuned for life to exist. Can't do it. Uh, looking at all these constants in the universe that um, scientists, um, they, you know, this, if this was tweaked just a little bit, like nothing. <laughs> Either one way or the other. If one of these variables, these constants in the universe that we can look at and measure and study, uh, if, if it was out just by a little bit, there'd be no life. It is perfectly fine-tuned for life to exist. A naturalistic worldview cannot explain that. A biblical worldview can. A naturalistic worldview can account for morals. If there's no meaning, if everything's by chance, there's no purpose, there's no good and evil. But a biblical worldview can account for morals. God is the master craftsman, the one true creator God who pronounces things good and evil. And what that means is, is that then the implication is, and this is where the natural man wants to suppress this, we are then responsible to our creator who has a purpose for us in his cosmos. He's created with purpose. He's created us for a purpose. And we are therefore accountable to our creator. Knowing that there's only one God and that you're accountable to that one true God is a prerequisite to understanding sin and the gospel. If there's no purpose, if there's everything chance, you can't have sin. But there is one true creator God who pronounces what's good and what's not. Which means he can tell us what sin is. And where we fall short, because we all fall short, and we'll get there. But it's a prerequisite 
to the gospel. The gospel that says we are all sinners. We are all, even though God has created us for a purpose in his universe, we don't respect him. We want to be our own rulers. We rebel against him. He pronounces that sinful and, and it demands as a good God and a good judge, his justice, his judgment, condemned to an eternity in hell, a created environment which is perfectly suited to mete out God's justice for all eternity. Something we could never avoid through our own efforts or works, but he, God sent his son to die in behalf of his people to cancel that debt to live the righteous life that we could not live such that we could be God's people through repentance and faith, through the work of his spirit, trusting Christ, could be his people and brought to a land. Our hope as Christians is not that when we die, we float up to heaven. Our hope as Christians, and we see this by the time we get look to the other bookend of the Bible in Revelation, that heaven comes down to earth. That there's no longer a separation between heaven and earth, but rather God's people dwell with God on a perfectly suited new heavens and new earth, enjoying God for all eternity. That is what Christ did in purchasing a people. He not only died for their sin, not only accounted to him his own righteousness, but what's the purpose of all of that? What's the purpose of his resurrection? What's the purpose of him taking on humanity to be, to bring a people to himself in a land, in a new heavens and a new earth, not an ethereal existence playing a harp forever, but enjoying the creator God for all eternity. So, when you see God's handiwork, you ought to see a joyful exuberance of God. God is a joyful God. He is a happy God. We can just see that. We can see that from the creation account. We can go just drive down the gorge a couple times, and you know God is a happy God. He's exuberant God. He loves what he creates, and he wants us to not only rejoice in the creation, it can't stop there, but to rejoice in him as a creator. We ought to stand in awe of God's creation and lead it to awe of him. Creation is still good, though affected by the fall, and ought to be legitimately enjoyed because God enjoys it. And we, he gives it to us to enjoy, to enjoy him. One other thing we see in this passage is that God is the ultimate workman. Like we said, that each day is very much portrayed that God is working during the daytime. He's the prototypical worker. Uh, and he's setting up for the pattern for Israelite workers. He's going to work six days and then he's going to rest. And I think we learn something from that. Even as uh, it was supposed to teach Israel, it's supposed to teach us. Work is good. And it is good to do it with excellence. God does his work with excellence. Uh, sometimes we think work is an effect of the fall, and definitely the fall affects work, but work is good. We live in a society where work is perceived as not good. It's better to just lay on the couch and watch Netflix all day. Um, it's better to not, not, you know, wait till you're 30 to get out of your parents' basement and go to work um, or, or whatever. We see this. We see this, don't we? 
But we need to understand that work and how we even do work, we are imaging our creator. There is honor in it and honor to our God in a way that we work for in excellence, not just seeking a paycheck, but working because it's honorable and pleasing to the Lord. Martin Luther understood this. Talking to in the Reformation, he, he, I'm going to paraphrase, obviously, but he's going to say that, you know, don't think of your work as trivial, whether you're, you know, uh, whether you're a, a, a pastor or whether you're a um, day laborer or whether you're a merchant or whatever your work is, if it's legitimate work, not sinful work, um, there is value and dignity to it because we are in that reflecting even God as the prototypical workman. So what do we learn from days two through five? Shape up your worldview. God formed and filled the cosmos for his pleasure and people. Let's pray. Uh, Father, you are amazing, and your creation is amazing, and it just gives us inklings of how awesome you are how happy you are as God, how exuberant and joyful you are, and we want to share in your joy. We know that that is only possible because you sent your son to die for our sin, to ransom us, to pay for all of our failure, to pay for all of our sin, to count Jesus' righteousness, who lived the perfect righteous life that we could not live in our place, that through repentance and faith, following Jesus. We are counted righteous, and you are bringing us, you're bringing us home to a new heavens and a new earth to share in your joy, and we thank you for that reality. Lord, help us to be a people. We are seek to represent the, 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 the kingdom that is coming in this church. Help us to be a people, not just individuals, but a people that proclaim the gospel and that have a biblical worldview and cling to it over against the false worldviews of those around us. We ask for your strength. We thank you for this morning that we get to partake in a meal that looks forward to that kingdom, that looks forward to the new heavens and the new earth. So we pray that you would bless that time now as we prepare to take um, the Christ's Supper. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.